be in the book of 1 Peter this morning, book of 1 Peter. We have been there for a few weeks now. It's going to be in chapter 2 and 3 this morning. While you guys uh, turn there, I'll tell you about podcast I listened to this past week, uh, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago, I'm not really sure now, but it was about the development uh, of the National Weather Service and some of the events that kind of led up to how we got uh, the National Weather Service as it exists uh, right now, especially the emergency alert system. Uh, and, and it was about one specific event. It told the story uh, of, of what is known as the schoolhouse blizzard of 1888. Probably not one that you've heard about. Maybe you have. But uh, it has gone down in the, in, in the history of the United States as one of the most deadly weather events in American uh, history. It was in January of 1888, kind of the Midwestern Plain states. So think like uh, Nebraska, the Dakotas, kind of that uh, area there, and uh, and even back up into the to the mountains, back up into uh, into Wyoming. And and what happened is that uh, kids got up that day and and found themselves with an unseasonably warm day for the Dakotas in January. Uh, it got up to close to 40 degrees, enough to where they were out uh, playing outside. The kids were able to get out from being snowed in their homes to go to school. They were actually excited to go to school, to be able to go and see their friends because they'd been snowed in for so long. Uh, they were hanging clothes out on clotheslines because of the sun that was there. Uh, it was a uh, very unexpected and welcome event for the morning. Uh, it was a heat, wa- heat wave for the Dakotas in January. Uh, what they didn't know is that just behind this kind of heat wave that, that came up uh, from the south was an Arctic blast was coming down from the north. And so what was 40 degrees at noon became negative 20 by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. 60 degree temperature drop within the span of just a few hours. Uh, and, and, and actually there's, there's some recordings in some places that uh, in, in a few different places it may be as much as, as a 100 degree temperature change within the day. Um, that's crazy. Like, I know we have crazy weather, but that's crazy uh, that that kind of thing uh, could, could happen. And so what happened is this uh, extreme temperature drop m- m- matched with the moist air that had come up uh, from the south, and then uh, the, the moisture in the air froze, kind of uh, like almost flash froze, uh, the moisture that was there. It became swirling ice all around them. The snow uh, came down. Uh, one estimate shows that in some places up to 55 inches of snow fell in one day. I don't even know how that is possible. Uh, that happened all at, at, at one time. And as the temperatures fell and uh, snow began to kind of swirl around, it became imperative for people to find a place to be. Now remember, this is 1880. There's no app on their phone uh, for them to be able to say, hey, this is coming and here's what it's going to be like. The only thing that they've got is a few uh, telegra- uh, telegram workers that are sending messages ahead saying, hey, it's cold and bad here, probably coming your way. That's about what they had for the emergency alert system. Uh, and, and so they, that, that would be it. And if you were at school or if you were at work, you didn't hear any of that kind of stuff. You didn't know that that's what was about to happen. And so all they could do is walk outside, look at the sky and say, huh, that looks interesting. Uh, that's kind of dark. wonder what's about to happen. And that's pretty much the way that it uh, went. And, and the, the unfortunate reality is that uh, many people simply never made it home 
that day. They never were able to make it home because of the timing of when things hit. And there's all kinds of uh, stories uh, that, are, that are out there, people who would leave a school or would leave a business to go home for shelter, and they would get outside and they would become completely disoriented in wide-out conditions. The snow as it poured down, the snow as it swirled around, the snow as it was all, uh, all around them, they would never make it to their destination. And, and there's some stories that would say that uh, a group needed to make it less than 80 yards to get to a home where there would be a fireplace and shelter. So we're talking like here to 60 beans. Like that's what we're talking about. And they would get outside and immediately they would be completely disoriented. The sun was uh, blocked out by dark clouds. The roads were covered. The trees were hidden by the snow. There were no landmarks. Uh, to a person, they would tell you that they could not see more than, they could not see their hand in front of their face because of the, the amount of snow that was there and the darkness that came upon, in the mid, on, came upon them in the middle uh, of the afternoon. And as, uh, as the, the things kind of went forward in the day, you, what you would find is that uh, people would get outside. And so again, just think from here to across the street. They would get outside and they would begin walking in a direction, get a little bit disoriented, and they would begin just kind of meandering all over the place, completely disoriented as to where anything was or where they were to go. And so there's terrible stories of people who were just, just feet away from the door of their house, but they couldn't see their house. And they didn't know it. And so they took a turn and they then veered off and never made it home. No roads, no horizon, no sun, no buildings, nothing. Uh, it simply leaves them to put one foot in front of the other and hope that they make it to their destination. This morning, as we dive back into this book of First Peter, we are looking at a letter to a group of people that are starting to feel some of this kind of disorientation in their lives. Not from the weather, not from anything that's physically happening to them, but something that is mentally and culturally, uh, they are in the midst of the storm. They are trying to figure out where do we go and what do we do here. They're starting to feel this level of disorientation where they're not sure what the next step should be, where they're not, not sure where it is that they need to go next. As the culture begins to press in on them, as everything that they've ever known, every habit they've ever had, every assumption that they've ever made about life has been completely turned upside down because they have come to know Jesus Christ. They have given their lives to Jesus, and they have heard the message of salvation, and they have then decided, this is who I am and what I will be a part of. And they're asking, where do I go from here? They've trusted Christ, committed to follow Jesus. They've become a part of this group of other people that have done the same. This group called Christians, they meet together regularly to kind of recount what Jesus has done and to encourage one another. This is what we call the church. And so they would get together and they would talk and, and then as they, they walk out from the relative uh, safety and comfort of their old lives into this new life of following Jesus with this new community, it can be very easy for them to be quickly disoriented. I think you can understand uh, maybe a little bit of what that might feel like. When everything that you thought about the way your life was going now changes, where every step that you assume that you would be making now changes and it says, no, you have to do these things all completely different. Their old habits and their old way of life won't do. 
Peter has said as much in the first couple of chapters. If you've been with us through uh, chapter 1, the first half of chapter 2, Peter has laid all of these things out. And he said, no, 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 no. you can't live the way that you've always lived. The gospel and what Jesus has done shapes the way you live. And you can't just keep doing it that way. And so that leaves a lot of people asking a lot of questions. There's no Bible for them to go to, at least not in the same sense of what we have. There's no, there's no kind of uh, history of knowledge, of interpretation, and of application of what it means to follow Jesus. In their mind, they're kind of following him blindly, not knowing what the next step should be. Should I go this way or should I go that way? If I go this way, it feels like a compromise. But if I go this way, I'm going to be beheaded. Should I go this way or should I uh, go in this different direction? But if I go in this different direction, my husband is probably going to divorce me. And so he's asking questions. People are asking very real questions of how in the world can I remain faithful to Jesus, this Jesus that has saved me and I've given my life to, but still function within this culture that has no structures built in for me to live the life I feel like I'm called to do. They're very real, very legitimate questions. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the question of what to do when the government turns hostile towards your faith, especially whenever uh, the government gives you no recourse, no vote, no voice. It simply is, and you have to take it. How do we function there? We've looked at the question of a, uh, of a wife whose husband is not a believer and how she should respond. Should she follow it, faith in Jesus, uh, follow her faith in Jesus, or should she take on his faith, which would have been the custom? How do you do this? In both, ans- in both cases, the answer was not a popular one. Not a popular one with most Americans, and quite frankly, not a popular one with most sinners like me and you. Because the path forward is disorienting, it's blinding. And without any kind of cultural conditions, the path forward was submission and humility. It's not something any of us want to have put on top of us. So today, we'll look at one more instance uh, of, of, of how Peter speaks into the culture and kind of bring them all together with some, some summary points toward the end uh, of the message that will, will kind of summarize what Peter's trying to do in this little section. Now, if you remember last week, what, uh, what I said Peter is doing in this section is he's addressing a very common idea during his day, and it's known as the household codes. Paul addresses this several different times. Peter is addressing it here. This is something that you find all throughout Roman literature outside of the Bible, that the, the household codes were a very normal way to explain this is how you do things. It's something we find all over the place, and it's the formal rules of the house. And there were certain things that each house expected out of its members. The head of the household, uh, the patriarch, would set the standard, and he would expect all others to fall in line. That's what Peter is doing in this section. He's helping the newly disoriented Christians figure out how to function within a culture that is built on household codes that do not take their faith into account at all. And we're going to look at one more member of the household that Peter wants to make sure he addresses and that he includes. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Some of this we've read before, some of it we've not. Chapter 2, verse 18. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to, be, to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for when you endure, that, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we've, we've, we've read this passage, and we've kind of danced around it uh, to, to this point. So we've talked about some pieces of it. We've talked about some how you, you, you apply the example of Christ as a husband and as a wife, as a, uh, as a citizen of another, uh, of another country, of another kingdom. Uh, but now we want to talk about specifically what he's addressing in this paragraph. He goes out of his way to address the servants of the house. The slaves. Let's not pretend that that word means anything else. It's the slaves. For centuries, this is one of the passages that people would use to justify slavery. But you just can't do that from this passage. It's simply not what Peter has in mind. So first off, a couple different things. One, we've discussed this before. This type of slavery is very different from the type of slavery that we know. This is not race-based. It's not predicated on forced imprisonment of groups of people. Now, don't get me wrong. This is still a very unjust system in which one person, the master, has all the power and the other person has no, no power whatsoever. But it's not the same as what, what we know. So I'm, I'm not defending this system. I'm simply saying let's put it in the proper context of what it actually is. Oftentimes, the, the, those that were slaves would submit themselves voluntarily in order to work off a debt or in order to ensure uh, that their, their family members would be provided for in some way. Again, it's not a good system, but it's the system that they had. And it's different than the one that, that we know. In fact, but, I, I mean, I'll say this. Again, I think it's an unjust system, and I think the fact that Peter addresses it here is evidence that it is an unjust system. That's what he's doing in this section. He's saying, here's these unjust things. The way you're being persecuted by the government and by the emperor. The way uh, a, a, a husband is treating his wife and demanding that she uh, not follow Christ but take on his faith. This kind of hierarchical, hierarchical system within the family is an unjust way of doing things. The way that it was set up. And he's saying this too is unjust whenever we start talking about slavery. Which is why I need to address this quickly. Because the reality is, if we're talking about a just system, then there's no problem submitting to that. It's easy for us to see how we can submit to that. The question is, how do we submit when it's unjust? How do we live whenever the things that we see happening before us are not right? It's the unjust power structures that Peter knows will create problems for all of these new Christians. And again, let's remember, the vast majority of people in these churches would have been poor, slaves, women, and generally those that had little to no power or influence within the Roman Empire. 
That's who the first Christians were, almost without exception. So Peter turns here to address the slaves. And again, just like the wives from last week, he seeks to empower them in the midst of this unjust system. He doesn't say, start a revolt. He doesn't say, overthrow the leader of the house. He doesn't say, go on strike and issue your demands to the uh, to the. the, the Uh, to your master and refuse to work until he meets those demands. That is not how uh, Peter thinks in this section at all. At any point, Peter is not thinking, here's how you address the system. He never tells us that in any of this. He never tells us, here's how you deal with the system that you are under. Instead, he says, here's how you function within this system. It's almost as if he accepts it as a foregone reality. This is simply the way it is. And instead of saying, here's how you address the system, he says, practically, here's how you make it to tomorrow. And here's how you make it to to tomorrow and remain faithful to Jesus. And he says, this is how you operate within an inherently flawed system. So what is Peter's advice to the slaves there? He says, be a good servant. He says, serve well. Do what is asked by your master. Do what you're told, even when you're under an unjust master. Follow his lead. Don't create trouble. He says, it's nothing for a slave that creates trouble to be beaten. There's no reward for that because you simply are getting what you, 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 you knew would happen if you, you're creating trouble. Troubles, But if you're a good servant and you still receive the beating, then know God sees you. He sees the injustice and he knows what you are enduring. So don't, don't, don't uh, work in such a way where you deserve the punishment, but instead work in such a way where you can say, God, you see me and you know me and know that he does see you. And what, he goes, what Peter goes out of his way to say is that he knows what you are enduring because he has lived it. Because Jesus has endured the same unjust treatment. It seems to me that Peter may be recalling a teaching that he heard at one point decades earlier when he stood at the side of Jesus. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, Peter's advice to those under unjust governments, unjust masters, and unjust household structures is essentially the same. This is not the place nor the time to push back. We're not here for a revolution like that. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. It seems as though Peter, the most outspoken and hot-headed of the apostles, has learned his lesson. We remember the scene as the guards came down to arrest Jesus. Peter is ready to throw down. He's ready to fight. He says, all right, this is it. The revolution is here. They're taking away the Messiah. It's time to fight. 
Matthew 26, Jesus said to them, friend, do what you came to do, talking to Judas. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That would be Peter. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then in John 18, 33, Jesus is talking with Pilate. And I just want you to hear his words. And I want you to hear how Peter echoes these words back in his letter that he writes. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do, uh, do you say this of your own accord or do, you, do others say it, say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Peter had learned his lesson. Peter had learned his lesson, which is pick the right battles. The battles fought are ones that are carefully chosen and done so with this world, not, not, so, not with this world primarily in mind, but with another world that is ahead of us and another kingdom that takes priority. So I want you to, I want you to, to, to listen. So we've laid all this out here, and I want you to hear what I'm saying and, and hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that Christians should not be a part of seeking justice where there, where there is injustice. My goodness, just read the prophets. Read the minor prophets especially. Shame on us if we do not seek justice where there is injustice. That is part of the call of the Christian, especially within the structure that we have here in America. I said this last week. We are in a different place than these people Peter is writing to. We should use every tool that we have available in order to make sure that there is justice where there is none. Peter is not saying that we do not seek justice. What Peter is trying to communicate to us, what he is trying to tell us, what he is trying to tell these, the most powerless in the society, what he is trying to communicate to them is, listen, there are fights you can fight and you will lose them, and they are fights built around the kingdoms of this world. Do not fight those battles. The battles you fight are fought for the kingdom of God. This has been the message of Jesus, and now it's the message that Peter gives when he tries to give this practical advice. Listen to how he says it now in 1 Peter chapter 3. So go over just a couple of chapters, just one chapter, to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil for or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Man, I tell you what, that flies against everything within me. When I'm reviled, when I am persecuted, when evil is heaped on me, what I want to do is figure out how do I get even? How do I settle this score? How do I get out from under this and put these people in their place? But Peter says, don't do that. That is not your task. That was what Peter wanted to do. That's why the sword came out and the ear came off. 
He wanted to push back against the evil. Jesus says, this is not the time nor the place. Pick your battles better, Peter. I don't think you understand what I've been telling you. He goes on in verse 10. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Now, we have taken that verse, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. We have taken that verse as the crusader's verse. Be an, be, be, be an apologist, know your arguments, have your arguments down. Be ready to dole out the arguments for why this is right and this is right, and how the Bible is true and how Jesus is, is you know, really risen from the grave and all of these things have all of that laid out. But if you read that in context, the hope that Peter is talking about is when Peter, people recognize you are suffering and you do not fight back and repay evil with evil. So it's not saying, what Peter is not saying is, get, you know, sharpen your sword and get ready to fight the cultural battles. What he's saying is, humble yourself and just know this is going to be hard and people are probably going to take notice at some point and say, what in the world are you doing? Why are you taking this like this? That's the context that he gives us there. And he says, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is clearly not the same guy that was ready to throw down in the garden. He has changed. But notice what has changed here is not primarily his methods, it's his goal. He wants to make sure that we are looking to the coming kingdom. Not to the kingdoms of this world. He barely even addresses the here and now of the situation. And I know when you read this, because this is how I am when I read this, like, this is begging for someone to say, no, Peter, Peter, ad address how wrong the slavery is. Address how wrong this family structure is. Address how wrong the persecution is. Teach them to fight. But Peter says, no, this is not what we are called to do. I have been rebuked for that once. I will not do it again. And it stings for us to read this. It stings for us to look at this and say, no, 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 no. You've got to fight back against all of these terrible things. Peter says that is not the way forward for us or for you. He simply wants these people. Now understand, this is not like a, an entire manifesto for how to engage the culture. Peter wants these people who have no power to know here's the next step that you take you're completely disoriented by this persecution you're completely disoriented by my, by this life change that you've got and then how you're supposed to respond or what you're supposed to do here's the next step 
and the blizzard of 1888, it was much the same. I have no doubt that the men that were, that were flailing in the snow cursed the wind and they cursed the snow. They cursed the darkness where they could not see. No doubt women and children feared as the temperatures plummeted, but it would do no good to yell at the snow. It would do no good to yell at the clouds and the darkness. What you needed was a strategy to get home. And that's what Peter's trying to do here. He's trying to help them get home. You know, in that blizzard, one of the, the, the main ways, one of the, the, when they, they tell the successful stories of people that were saved and people that made it, do you know what one of the main things was that they did? They took rope and they would wrap it around their waist. And they had groups of people that each of these groups that did this, almost, almost without uh, without fail, each of the groups that would take the rope and put it around their waist and they would loop everyone together so that they stayed together and one would not be lost, they were able to make it home. They were able to make it to shelter because they were attached to one another. They weren't blindly feeling their way in the snow alone, but instead they were, they were anchored to one another. Tell me that doesn't sound like the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says that we are built together into a, 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 into a spiritual house on the cornerstone of Jesus. Roped together, tied together. This is what we are as the church. And I think what Peter is trying to say here is, here, put this rope around your waist, follow me, because I, I, I know the missteps that can be taken here. Follow me in my teaching and I'll tell you how to get home. I'll show you how to make it to that place. I think that's Peter's goal here, that no one would be left behind. That no one would be forgotten, even those that are the most forgotten. You know, whenever you read these household, co household codes uh, in, in Roman literature and you see that these things are out there, they almost never address the slaves. Like they don't, they, they don't even deserve the merit of discussing the rules for their life. They simply just have to take it. But Peter goes out of his way to address them and say, I've not forgotten you. Here's how you can make it in this. Curse the snow and wind if you want, but it's still going to come. What you need to figure out is how to get home. And that's what Peter wants to do. He says, undoubtedly, these steps will be painful. But Jesus has walked the same road. And this is the walk of a Christian. You see, submission truly is at the heart of the Christian faith. Submission, if, if, if you want to say, what is the mark of a Christian? I think you probably got two things that you can put out there. Love and submission. One of those sounds and feels really good, but is really hard. The other one sounds terrible, and it's really hard. But it is the mark of the Christian faith. From the voluntary submission of God himself to a cross, to the very necessary submission that all of us must make if we are to call ourselves Christians. But for so many of us, it is the submission that we find so elusive. Listen to how Spurgeon says this whenever he addresses this idea of submission. 
He says, a lack of submission is no new or rare fault in mankind. Ever since the fall, it has been the root of all sin. From the moment when our mother Eve stretched out her hand to pluck the forbidden fruit, and her husband joined her in setting up the human will, uh, the human will against the divine, the sons of men have been universally guilty of a lack of conformity to the will of God. They choose their own way, and they will not submit their wills. They think their own thoughts, and they will not submit their understanding. They love earthly things, and they will not submit their affections. Man wants to be his own law and his own master. Man, there's nothing that feels good about what Peter is teaching here. I would love to be able to throw this out to you guys and be like, and here's how you do this, and here's how it feels great, and here's how this is wonderful. But you know what Peter says? He said, here's how this is like being on the cross. Which sounds a lot like what Jesus told us whenever he said to take up our cross daily. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is what Peter's doing here. And here's the surprising paradox of it all. For all of us, almost universally, again, I go back to the, where, I, where I began here, as Americans, almost all, all of us believe that our best bet to be heard in culture is that we stand up and scream as loudly and pompously as we can. The louder the carnival barker, the more money he makes. The bigger the battles we fight, the bigger the victory. For Peter, this simply is not the case. For Peter, our best methods of communicating our message are paradoxically found whenever we submit and we humble ourselves. It's the advice he gives to wives. And then here in verse 15, it's the advice that he gives for us. And he says, if you will do this, people will ask questions. And they'll want to know, why in the world are you doing this? And his assumption is that as we submit, our voice becomes louder than we could ever imagine. It is the constant paradox of the Christian faith. The way up is down, the first are last, the mourners comfort, and the persecuted are the ones that see the kingdom of God. For Peter, the disorientation we feel as exiles finds its voice in making sure others understand our kingdom priorities, which looks a lot like submission. So my question is, how, how does this work out for you? I mean, obviously, we're not in the exact same cultural situation as they were in the early Roman Empire there when Peter addresses this, but by all accounts, we can see the storm that is coming. I don't know where things are going to go in our culture. I don't know what things are going to look like. But by all accounts, we can see a storm is coming. And no doubt, it will be disorienting for all of us. And we will want to know, where do we go? How do we take a step forward? What does it look like as we move on? What does it look like to follow Jesus in this place where the whole world says, you can only follow Jesus if you're a Republican. You can only follow Jesus if you're a Democrat. You can only follow Jesus if you do it this way. And you can only follow Jesus if you can do it this way. Very much the same situation 
that, that so many of Peter's listeners would have found themselves. And Peter says, this is the way forward. It's the way of the cross. You submit yourself and your will, your will to him. I'm not talking about doormat Christianity where you just let people walk all over you in the same sense that you have, you, you have no personality and you just disappear. What I'm talking about is there are people that are so radically committed to the kingdom of God that when people see us, they say, how come you don't engage in all these other things in the same way that the rest of us do? And the answer is, is because we submit to the cross and the cross alone, to Jesus Christ. The way forward when you cannot see in the midst of the storm is humility, submission, and an unqualified commitment to the kingdom of God. I have no idea what that looks like for you. I mean, where you're at right now, it might be sunny and warm. The things that you're dealing with in life, and you may not feel any of this tension. Others of you may be engaged in the very nitty-gritty of the injustices of this world. And you might see that wind blowing and you're trying to figure out, how do I go forward and call myself a faithful follower of Jesus? And the answer is an unqualified commitment to the kingdom of God. But all of this begins with that initial commitment. The most important thing you can do in this life is that you submit your life to his. No games, no holding back, no I'll do this for that, no I'll come to church for a little while and then we'll see how things go. This is the mark of the Christian faith. You take a God who submits himself to, to the cross, and then you take a God who calls his followers to submit everything to him. This is what it means to be a Christian. We are not our own. We are bought with a price, and we submit to him. That's the only way the Christian life works. There is no other way forward. This world is not our home. The kingdom of God is our pursuit. And submission is the way forward. Humility is the way forward. The day-to-day -day work of the kingdom and not getting caught up or distracted is the way forward. And we must remember, remember we are not the main player in this story. It is God and we are following God. Him. So this morning, you may not feel like you're in the midst of a blizzard. You may not feel like, you, you may feel like you know the next step forward for you. You may feel like you know what the next thing looks like for you. Others of you may be showing up at school tomorrow, or you may be dealing with things where you walk in and you say, I have no idea how I'm supposed to do this. I just want to encourage you, submit to him. Put everything, all your chips, all of it on the kingdom of God. And don't be distracted from that. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning 
when our temptation is so quickly to say, but wait a minute, wait, wait, what about this or what about that? What about this situation? Well, I don't want to do it this way. I don't want to do it that way. Father, I feel in my own spirit that I, I want to say, but, but wait, that can't be how it works here. Father, I pray that you would give us a spirit of humility that says, Father, you lead and we follow. Father, may we learn the lessons that Peter has learned. May we fight the right battles, pursuing the right kingdom, worshiping you, the only God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.